Good morning, everybody, and a very special welcome to those who are visiting us today. It's great to have you with us, and we hope you will feel at home. Join in as much or as little as is comfortable for you, and if you go wrong, well, I probably will too, so don't worry about it. Our call to worship comes from the second letter of Paul to the church at Corinth. He says to the Corinthians, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter of Christ, prepared by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are competent of ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Our competence is from God, who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of a letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It seemed good today to use... Prayers and liturgy drawn from the Baptist resource gathering for worship. And so all our prayers and liturgy come from that source today. We come to God in prayer, so let us pray together. Living love, beginning and end, giver of food and drink, clothing and warmth, love and hope. Life in all its goodness. We praise and adore you. Jesus, wisdom and word, lover of outcasts, friend of the poor, one of us, yet one with God, crucified and risen, life in the midst of death. We praise and adore you. Holy Spirit, storm and breath of love, bridge builder, eye-opener, unseen and unexpected, untamable energy of life, we praise and adore you. Holy Trinity, forever one, whose nature is community, source of all sharing, in whom we love, and meet, and know our neighbour, life in all its fullness, making all things new. We praise and adore you. Amen. The first reading is from Isaiah, verse 42, sorry, chapter 42, verses 1 to 9, and it can be found on page 705 of the Bible. The Lord says, here is my servant whom I strengthen, the one I have chosen with whom I am pleased. I have filled him with my spirit and he will bring justice to every nation. He will not shout or raise his voice or make loud speeches in the streets. He will not break off a bent reed nor put out a flickering lamp. He will bring lasting justice to all. He will not lose hope or courage. He will establish justice on the earth. Distant lands eagerly wait for his teaching. 
God created the heavens and stretched them out. He fashioned the earth and all that lives there. He gave life and breath to all his people. And now the Lord God says to his servant, I, the Lord, have called you and given you power to see that justice is done on earth. Through you, I will make a covenant with all peoples. Through you, I will bring light to the nations. You will open the eyes of the blind and set free those who sit in dark prisons. I am alone. I am the Lord your God. No other God may share my glory. I will not let idols share my praise. The things I predicted have now come true. Now I will tell you of the new things, even before they begin to happen. The second reading is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 21, and can be found on page 306. My dear friends, do not believe all who claim to have the Spirit, but test them to find out if the Spirit they have comes from God. For many false prophets have gone out everywhere. This is how you will be able to know whether it is God's Spirit. Anyone who acknowledges that Jesus Christ came as a human being has the Spirit who comes from God. But anyone who denies this about Jesus does not have the Spirit from God. The Spirit that they have is from the enemy of Christ. You heard that it would come, and now it is here in the world already. But you belong to God, my children, and have defeated the false prophets, because the spirit who is in you is more powerful than the spirit in those who belong to the world. Those false prophets speak about matters of the world, and the world listens to them because they belong to the world. But we belong to God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever does not belong to God does not listen to us. This, then, is how we can tell the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Dear friends, let us love one another, because love comes from God. Whoever loves is a child of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. And God showed his love for us by sending his only son into the world so that we might have life through him. This is what love is. It is not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to so be the means by which our sins are forgiven. Dear friends, if this is how God loved us, then we should love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another... God lives in union with us, and his love is made perfect in us. We are sure that we live in union with God, and that he lives in union with us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have seen and tell others that the Father sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If we declare that Jesus is the Son of God, we live in union with God, and God lives in union with us. And we ourselves know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and those who live in love live in union with God, and God lives in union with them. Love is made perfect in us in order that we may have courage on the judgment day, and we will have it because our life in this world is the same as Christ's. 
There is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out all fear. So then, love has not been made perfect in anyone who is afraid, because fear has to do with punishment. We love because God first loved us. If we say we love God but hate others, we are liars. For we cannot love God whom we have not seen if we do not love others whom we have seen. The command that Christ has given us in this, whoever loves God must love others also. Amen. I wonder how full you think our church is today. And I wonder how you decided that. I have a suspicion you looked around and saw how many people there were or how many empty seats there were and decided based on that. Actually, this room is completely and utterly full. Because as well as us, and as well as the chairs and the cups and the fruits and the communion elements and the candles and everything else, it is filled with air. We can't see it. We don't even think about it. In fact, if we're honest, I suspect until I mentioned it, you totally disregarded it. A room that is full of air and nothing else, we would say, is empty. But actually it isn't. It's full of air. And what about our bodies? The air flows into us and out of us as we breathe. And yet, if I were a betting woman, which I'm not, I would be prepared to pay lay odds that until I mentioned it, nobody here was thinking about their breathing. And now, suddenly, judging by faces, quite a few people at least are quite conscious of it, going in and out, in and out. We feel the movement of our lungs we feel the air. But actually, do you know, as I carry on talking, you'll forget again. And your breathing will carry on, quiet and unobserved. You might wonder what on earth any of that has to do with anything. And that's fine. When Christians speak about the activity of God's spirit, very often it is in relation to the dynamic and the ecstatic. Utterances in strange languages. Strange behaviour, such as barking like dogs, or laughing uncontrollably, I can't even say it, laughing uncontrollably, (laughs) or to sudden swooning. I'm not going to even try to say that again. We think about exuberant or extrovert actions, such as arm-waving, or supernatural activities, such as miraculous healings. For some Christians, that kind of talk is disturbing. It is frightening to imagine such a loss of control, such erratic activity. For some Christians, this is the hallmark, second to none, of authenticity. Somebody who is a, quote, spirit-filled Christian will do these things. The truth is, for many Christians, these kind of 
unusual behaviours are something of which they have little or no experience and probably little or no desire to experience. But this is very often how movement of the Holy Spirit is perceived. So what does that have to do with anything and how does that connect with me talking about air that's everywhere? Well, I think as we want to begin to think about the motion of God's spirit, we have to start with some language of mystery. And I'm sorry, it's theological language as well. The ideas of imminence and transcendence. Imminence, the God who is closer than our own breathing. And transcendence, the God who is beyond the furthest reaches of creation. And actually is simultaneously here and there. The idea of a God who is omnipresent, present everywhere. I think very often we think of those ideas on their own, the God who's close to us and the God who's far away and the God who is everywhere. But actually they are all true at once. If you want a different way of thinking about Trinity, perhaps that's one of them, imminent, transcendent and omnipresent. But perhaps this idea of the analogy of air and breathing can help us just a little bit. If you live on Earth, air is pretty well omnipresent. It's even in the water of the sea, even if it's dissolved. Well, oxygen is anyway. But we don't think about it. It's just, just there. It just is. Every once in a while, we see the activity, the consequences of the activity of the air moving. We feel a gentle breeze on a hot day. We see images on our televisions of hurricanes ripping trees from the ground and scattering them like twigs. We see washing flapping on a line. We see the storm clouds scurry across the sky. Each of those is a movement of the air. And some are dynamic and disturbing, even frightening. And others are just everyday and gentle. So might it be the same with God's spirit? Sometimes dynamic and sometimes quiet and gentle, but always active, always moving. And might it be that our attitude towards the extreme and unusual lures us away from the fact that unseen, unheard, and unnoticed, God's Spirit is always in motion, slipping in and out and through our hearts and our minds, nudging us towards God, leading us away from evil, and so on. I think it might. Before we turn our attention to look necessarily briefly at the passages that Joyce read for us and how they relate to the spirit in motion, I think it might be helpful and at least informative to spend a few moments thinking about the way the church through history has at various times set about deliberately invoking the Holy Spirit. If only as a means of recognising that 20th century charismatic experience is precisely that, something that happened at a particular point in time, rather than something that has happened through the whole of Christian history. 
In fact, for most people, between around about 200 until about 1900, the idea of speaking in tongues or any of that would have been total anathema. They would have said, that all finished a long time ago. It's only really in the 20th century that that aspect of Christian experience was rediscovered and for some people has proved to be very helpful. From very early times, the church has practiced baptism into the threefold name of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The early rituals would see newly baptized believers anointed with oil, the bishop would lay hands upon them, and the bishop would explicitly invoke the Holy Spirit to descend upon or into each person. In fact, if you are an Anglican or a Catholic and possibly even a Methodist, you'll know there's a correct way round to put your hands because it's the right hand that has to touch the person and left hand behind it. Strange things I've learned down the years. But you call down, the priest will call down the Spirit of God on that person. As the church grew and with the emergence of doctrines such as original sin um, and infant baptism, things started to change. With a bigger church, the bishop couldn't always get there to every baptism. So other priests acted vicariously. You ever wonder why vicars are called vicars? It's because they act vicariously for the bishop. That's why Baptists don't do bishops, you see, because everybody's in their own right. But the priest, the vicar, would carry out every part of the baptism except the final anointing and laying on of hands. You see, when infant mortality was very high... And with the theology that said unbaptized infants couldn't get to heaven, this was a really pastoral response to a difficult situation. Rather than wait and hope to goodness that your baby still was alive next time Bishop Thingamabob came by, they were baptized by the vicar, apart from the final bit. Next time the bishop passed, he could do that. And that would normally be within a year. But the church carried on growing as God's spirit was active. And the time it took for a bishop to be able to visit got longer and longer and longer. And by around the first, the end of the first millennium, around about the time that uh, William the Conqueror was thinking about invading the bottom of England, what many churches now practice as, as confirmation was a well-established rite. And it became understood as a transition into a personally owned faith. It was a kind of a discipleship rite. But again, in some churches, it was understood as a sacrament, and the Holy Spirit would be called down. Again, if you go into a Catholic or an Anglican or an Orthodox church, when the young people come forward to be confirmed, the bishop or the minister or the priest will put their hands on the head and call down the Spirit. So here's a question for you to think about. Was God's spirit active in the lives of those children between their baptism and their confirmation? And if so, how? I have a feeling we're back to this idea of the air that surrounds us, the wind that blows where it chooses, rather than some form of ritualized infusion achieved by the right form of words and the right beliefs of those involved, with apologies to those who practice it in that kind of way. 
And of course, there are other occasions when Christians have traditionally invoked the name of the Holy Spirit. At ordination, sometimes at marriage, but at the Eucharist, at the, the Lord's table. Either calling for the bread and wine to be transformed in a number of ways, depending what your theology is. So we have transubstantiation, we have consubstantiation, and we have the concept of spiritual food. Or, which would be more typical in a traditional Baptist understanding, for the spirit to transform the hearts and minds of the participants. The two are not exclusive, but that's how it tends to be. We haven't got time to explore those different understandings. But it is true that very often most Christians will invoke the Holy Spirit specifically in the rite of communion, which they will refer to as a sacrament. Just need some water. Baptists have a very complex relationship with the idea of sacraments. And I have to be honest and say I think an awful lot of Baptists kind of bend the definition of a sacrament so they can use the words in good conscience. But then I would say that because I don't have a sacramental theology. I'm an ordinance theologian. I'm that kind of a Baptist. Despite all that, I think the traditional Aquinas definition of a sacrament is actually very helpful. It takes us beyond ritualized practices and to something that I think is challenging and encouraging and affirming for all of us. The way Aquinas defined a sacrament is as an outward visible sign of an inward invisible grace. I'll say that again. An outward visible sign of an inward invisible grace. Now, if we understand grace in this context as referring to a charism or a gift, then we see that a sacrament is nothing more and nothing less than a sign of God's Holy Spirit at work. And therefore, I think we cannot confine that to a set number of rituals, be it two or seven, of which nobody can do more than six at one time. But we won't go down that route. I'm not digging, honestly. If we turn to the scriptures with which we began, I'd like to suggest that sacraments are part of the everyday life of people of God in whom the air of the Holy Spirit is at work. I don't believe that there are specific rites which, if correctly administered, guarantee the delivery from God of a specific form of grace. Other people do, but I don't. For me, grace is grace. It's active long before we're able to recognize it or understand it, and it is offered whenever, wherever, and however God so decides. That doesn't mean I think baptism and communion are unimportant. Quite the opposite. I think they are very important, but it does affect the way I understand it. But for me, one of the great things about this kind of an understanding of grace is there is nothing flamboyant or boisterous about it. The characteristics we hear of are quiet and ordinary. They are tender and affirming. 
There's nothing strange or troubling about grace. It is as natural and as normal as the air we breathe and which surrounds us. The Isaiah passage we heard, which is very, very beautiful, is usually read as applying to Jesus, the bringer of justice, who does not make loud speeches in public. And rather than snapping off a bowed reed, he gently straightens it out and supports it as it grows. Rather than snuffing out a guttering flame, he gently blows on it and fans it into new life. Quietly and gently, God's servant transforms the experience of the most vulnerable of people. And if this is the result of the Holy Spirit's action, then surely this must be a sacrament, an outward visible sign of the inner invisible charism of grace. Wasn't it? Or what about those words from the first letter of John? Very beautiful words, which state quite clearly that the outward visible sign of authentic spirit-filled Christianity is love. Love as a sacrament, an attitude, a way of living as the outward sign of God's work within us, And much more than that if we believe what we just read in 1 John. Because it is love that distinguishes the true believer from the false believer. It says very clearly, if we do not love others whom we can see, we cannot love God whom we cannot see. They're very beautiful words, but they're very challenging The idea that perfect love is free from fear. I wonder what you're afraid of. Or who you're afraid of. Because I still have fears and people groups who frighten me. So my love is not yet made perfect. I wonder if there are areas of your life that have yet to be transformed by the refreshment of the Spirit's movement, gently blowing out those cobwebs of fear or distrust, of enmity or revenge, of bitterness or regret. And then, of course, so what? Where do we go from here? Well, we're not going into a debate over sacramental theology. We're not going to have a discussion about charismatic experience. Since these are human sidetracks away from a simple but profound message of scripture regarding the way God's spirit moves. The lifestyle of the Isaiah servant expressed in Jesus. The fearless love demanded by John outward fruit of the inner working in the letters to the Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These are the signs. These are the demonstrations. 
These are the proofs of God's spirit at work. Moving within all of us. Around all of us. And wheresoever God wills. Amen. We bring our prayers for ourselves and for others. Let us pray. Loving and Holy Spirit of God, we pray that we and all people may increasingly work together to establish on earth the kingdom of God's shalom. We pray that the resources of the world may be gathered, distributed and used with unselfish motives and scientific skill employed for the greatest benefit of all. We pray for those whose daily labour is devoted to growing, producing and distributing food from subsistence farmer to global conglomerate. We pray for those whose work lies in the fields of scientific research, seeking new understanding and new solutions to the challenges of life on earth. We pray that beauty may be given to our towns and cities and left untarnished in the countryside. In this month of the West End Festival, we pray that many visitors will find nourishment for body, mind and spirit as they discover the delights of our corner of your world. And in the countryside and hills we glimpse from our windows, we pray that others will enjoy safety and relaxation as they explore creation. We pray that children may grow up strong in body, sound in mind and trained in spirit, confident in their own identities and assured of unconditional love. We pray for teachers and educationalists continually challenged to undertake new and complex responsibilities with a constantly shifting curriculum. We pray for children and young adults who are taking or have just taken exams as they await the next steps in determining their futures. We pray that there may be open ways and peace and freedom from end to end of the earth. We pray especially for people in lands where violence and warfare have become almost normative. Where corruption thwarts endeavours to restore hope. And where poverty and disease are so often unchecked. In a moment of silence we bring to God our own prayers. We pray that people everywhere everywhere, may learn to live in love as your spirit's motion gently transforms their hearts and minds and as they keep company with Jesus Christ our Lord 
in whose great and gentle name we pray. Amen. Go now, and as you go, know this. In grace you were created, in mercy you have been sustained, in love you will be held forever. Amen. Our worship is ended. Our service begins.